Welcome to On the Bench. I got Chris Nee and Brendan Sinone. We're back for another action-packed episode. We are here to break down some of the X's and O's after the rewatch of the FSU-UNC game. Uh, we're also going to get into some recruiting as FSU hits the bye week. I got Chris and Brendan here with me. Um, I want to start with the Mike with what Mike Norvell said after FSU stunned UNC over the weekend. This is a quote from Mike during the presser. I really believe this is a new team, and this is a team that's investing the work in all areas. The way that they're working on the field, off the field, in the weight room, in every aspect, they're trying to push and improve in who they are, what they're about, and they do believe. Um, Mike Norvell was basically saying this is a new team. Uh, Chris, you were there on the ground for this. Do you believe we are seeing a real transformation? I think we're in the process of attempting one. Uh, I kind of call him this uh, essentially that FSC is working really hard to make believers out of themselves. And that's where it starts. It doesn't matter what the outside noise says or what any of us says. It's about that team buying in and believing in what they can and cannot be and excelling at what they can be. I think Saturday was a mighty good step in that direction. We saw a defensive positive improvements that were definitely uh, directly related to things done in practice. That's a good thing to see a translation of that. Offensively, the identity has become established. They know who and what they are and what they can do. And when they excel at that, they're actually pretty damn good, as we saw on Saturday. Now there's a small margin of errors on both sides of those balls with those type of things. But I think we're definitely seeing some signs of, yeah, they're they're absorbing the words that are being fed to them. And to this team's credit, up and downs this year, they never really looked like a team that was quitting. They played in games for four quarters. There's a lot of those kind of positive signs that, yeah, I think this is a new batch of people. I think they've kind of put to better some of the old ghosts that have haunted this program in recent years. But that's in no way saying that they're anywhere close to being truthfully very good or even good at all. Brendan, uh, what's your take on, I mean, you, you know, you've sat through a lot of practices be- between the spring practices, fall camp practices during this the season uh we have full access to these guys the roster hasn't changed at all but the play on the field has what's your take on it chris touched on this it was really cool to see things that they work on and when they struggle like you hear the outside noise especially like from from disgruntled fans saying oh why don't they practice this why don't they practice that why don't they work on this they do they do they rep you know like guys turning around to play the football defensive backs the same thing that's that's derailed them against Notre Dame and other games this year. Like they practice that all the time. And there was examples of guys like Jamie Robinson making a really good play on the ball in the game on Saturday, but also doing that in practice earlier in the week. There was also an example of Jerry and Jones who made the interception to really make that. That was a game changing play that he made. He gets to break the rock afterwards. He didn't make that play in practice a couple times this past week. Mike Norvell was frustrated, but they keep coaching it. They keep talking about it. They keep harping on it over and over again. And it finally broke through. That kind of goes back to what Kenny Dillingham talked about with the bamboo uh, analogy a couple weeks ago about it growing 90 feet in a few days after it's been been uh, dormant underground for a while. You just don't know when it's going to take And And that's, this program has been so fractured and so fragile for such a long period of time that that anytime something goes wrong or something that a message that's harped on in the week doesn't go right during the game, guys get their heads down, negative vibes, negative energy. And to see that kind of manifest itself in something positive for it to translate over into something real on national television. I don't know what that leads to in a couple of weeks, but 
it at least gives you something to, to build on. And I think that's ultimately a really encouraging sign for belief. You're right. And Chris Nee wrote a great column on Knowles 24-7. You guys can go check that out. And Chris, one of the things you kind of harped on was building block moments. And um, I think it was it, it, we saw the team grow right before our eyes when they were down 10-0. And as you illustrated, not only were they down 10-0, but uh, Devontae Love-Taylor goes down yep. for the game at that time. Yeah, he had gone out, got booted up. Um, he was in the process of getting booted up. But they, they had 12 yards of offense now, given they had only run, I believe it was six plays at that point in time. So that's part of the reason for that. But UNC's got 126. FSU has 12. All the momentum seems to be on the side of the baby blues. FSU's face, I believe it was a third and long. Jay Sean Corbin comes out, opens the second quarter, big run. And, man, second quarter, FSU just gets it going, puts together arguably their best quarter in a long time, probably since that Duke game late last year, and certainly a better opponent than that Duke team was last year. And they they look good doing it. I think in this portion of this conversation, I think the thing that needs to be highlighted is Mike Norvell comes to work every day with the same messaging and the same approach. Win, lose, draw, good, bad, ugly, frustrated, happy, doesn't matter. He's the same way every day. And I think that when the leader is that way, I think it starts rubbing off on the players. And they talk about response after the game. I believe it was Jordan Travis was asked essentially, where was that response rooted in? And he was very direct and just said, Coach Norvell. And I think that's true. I, I, I do think the guy, the head coach, knows he's always – they take a macro approach. Think back to John Papuchas last week talking special teams and how they not had a whole lot of good returns, but that they're going to do what they're going to do long-term as a program. It isn't about what are we going to do Saturday to maybe have success or to possibly eliminate failure. It's about what we're going to be long-term as a program. I think as you keep banging on that drum and sending that message, when you start seeing some moments of turning the corner, that's a positive because it's not simply a Saturday success. It's about guys essentially buying in and believing in what they're trying to do and going and actually doing it. And FSU made plays Saturday. They valued the football. They made the huge defensive play that Jerry and Jones had, another goal line type stop for them. Those are the kind of things that we've seen them pile up a couple goal line stops. They've been pretty good overall at valuing the ball in recent weeks. Those are things that they're doing week over week, and to me that that's pretty solid sign. I'm not expecting them suddenly to run off a bunch of wins. They're still going to lose games, and they're still going to have bad outings. But I do think there's some positives within the nuance of what they're doing successfully. I had someone that left the program uh, positively. They, they left the program. Tell me when they were leaving, Mike Norvell leads from the front. And that makes yeah. it really easy to follow a guy like that. I mean, it, and Josh has talked about this on the pod previously with people that, you know, wanting to make coaching changes in year and season. And Mike isn't going to to do that because he's valuing consistency. He wants to stay the course. He's someone who, and he, like Chris said, he comes to work every single day, with the same level of energy that he had the day before, doesn't matter what happened the week, you know, the, over the weekend with the game, he has that same level of energy. You could hear him every single practice going, "Oh yeah!" to start off the very beginning of practice. He is someone that just brings a ton of energy, and it's consistent. And after and, and a certain tried, period of time, I tried to break find the stories of the staff cracking and no, breaking. It doesn't um, exist because we're in year two, and this team was zero and four, and people are expecting some of the stuff to leak out that was leaking out of the Willie Taggart era when things were, were going really bad in year two. And, you know, I've been talking to multiple sources. I've come on this podcast and said it many times that 
the only thing that they tell me in the background is that there's consistency. And and yeah. they said, you know, Josh, Mike Norvell isn't going to fire somebody ha- halfway through the season. He's not going to, you know, bench half the team and bring in because that will show that Panic. his plan, you know, that he's deviating from what he's saying. And that's just yeah. not Mike Norvell. And, and um, all that being know, said, I think it's fair to add one, he's going to evaluate anything and everything at the end of the day because he always does at the end of the year, like most coaches. So that's not to say changes aren't going to happen. Who knows what changes could or may not happen. For example, to Josh's point, the defense obviously had some massive issues in the back half that have shown up regularly in four or five games this year. All they've done about that is go to practice and try to improve it. We've seen them work a great deal on, for example, pattern matching, switch-offs. That was something that was a huge emphasis after Syracuse. And it was an emphasis before, but because they were so bad against Syracuse with it, they put a great deal of individualized effort. Practice isn't a carbon copy of every single day. They go to practice usually with a purpose of working on technique and fundamentals every single day. But if they have something they need to focus on, they do focus on it. And they put a great deal of work into it. And they want to see the fruit of those labors. It's why the special team situation, and this week obviously they had a 41-yard return, made every extra point. Those are positives for that. But it's why the special teams returns to that point in time were so frustrating for them because they do invest a hell of a lot of time into trying to be good at it. All right, let's get into the rewatch a little bit. Uh, Chris, on offense, uh, we talked about kind of that first, the, the first quarter and and how things started to change after that injury. Uh, but what did you notice on the rewatch that stood out to you? Well, the first quarter was sort of butchered by a penalty and two incomplete passes. They had a long shot to Helton that was too long, and they had to pass at the line of scrimmage that got tipped almost intercepted, fell dead. So that's kind of why the first quarter was a fizzle effect for the FSU offense. Second quarter started running the ball. Travis got in rhythm, obviously hits on his next 11. He also ran the heck out of it. Corbin was effective. Ward was effective. Receivers made plays. They hit four chunk plays in the passing game. I would argue that three of them were wholeheartedly schemed up. The Cam McDonald screen play was a very, very nice play. Keyshawn Helton splits two DBs at line of scrimmage, outbreaks a safety and catches a 44-yard vertical. You have the 18-yard toe-tap catch by Helton. That's when I would argue was not really schemed up. UNC had eight in coverage and just lost them, and he made a great catch at the, line, the sideline, and the ball was there. And then the uh, fourth catch that was schemed up was the Ontario Wilson touchdown, where they got a little motion and got people out of whack, and the safeties didn't do a good job of kind of passing that one off and figuring it out, and Wilson hits the jump man after doing it. But efficiency, it was out of this world, 54 plays, seven yards per snap. They had two negative plays all day, no sacks allowed, first time against an FBS opponent since BC 2019, second time this year. JSU did not have a sack against FSU. Um, But the two tackles for loss were minimal losses. I think one was three and one was one, if I recall correctly. And then a couple penalties early on. I think Darius Washington had one. Dylan Gibbons obviously had, I think, the first one. Um, but they got that in order. They got away from that. So they and no turnovers. So offensively efficient, took care of the ball, did not hurt themselves, ran the hell out of it. It's the formula. It's who and what they are. There's going to be teams that will give them more struggles than UNC, who defensively wasn't all that impressive on Saturday in person, truthfully, especially the linebackers in the front seven. Um, but it, it worked. And FSU was really, really good at it. When they got in that rhythm, they were unbelievable at it for two quarters. Can we give a shout out to the offensive line? Let's just round of applause, fellas. Clap. Come on. They deserve it. No? Okay. You're muted, Josh. Well, FSU was seventh nationally in 
time to throw. Jordan Travis averaged 3.3 seconds, so only 13 dropbacks granted, but but still, uh, that's impressive. And then your average yards before carry was somewhere in the three yards uh, range average, and I think that was 15th nationally where they landed at. And, and that offensive line being relatively ha- healthy, yes, they lost Devontae Love-Taylor, but I would contend that Babyon Johnson, like at 80%, is probably better than Devontae Love-Taylor at 50%, and he is not 100%. Uh, as we saw during the game, and he has to leave in the boot. But to get Robert Scott and Marie Smith playing at a higher level, the offensive line doesn't have to be great when Jordan Travis is healthy and feeling good. Uh, they just have to be average and take care of the numbers advantage that Jordan Travis presents. And then when he can go ahead and be as efficient as he was, and he was he was arguably the most efficient passer in the country this past yeah. weekend. When, when that combination happens, FSU's offense can do some things. The O-line definitely gets been- credit here. The play calling's been really good the last couple of weeks at alleviating pressure on the O-line too. There were there's one instance where Travis actually stood in. He ended up taking off, getting a minimal game, but the O-line blocked it up. But there weren't a whole lot of instances where I think the O-line had to sustain blocks for a lengthy period of time or where the action didn't go a certain direction to allow the O-line to essentially overplay to that direction. Yeah, I was going to say the O-line gets the credit, but I think – Overall, it was a three-pronged approach between game plan and the fact that Jordan Travis was in there. Because if Mackenzie Milton's in there, there's probably three or four sacks on the day. But, you know, all three of those things clicking, we we do now know what the best combination is on offense. It's Jordan Travis rolling out, throwing, you know, enough to win the game, but not on every down. And the O-line, you know, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get about two or two and a half seconds worth of, worth so- of time in that pocket. Um but we did or, see things clicking. Brendan has a great story up on Knowles 24-7, a film review. Um, he breaks down both the offense and defense at key moments in the game. But I want you to stick to the defense right now. Brendan, what did you learn in the rewatch? I thought Adam Fowler had a really good game plan for North Carolina. You had to hide your linebackers. That was an area going into the game that I was – concerned about what those guys are going to be able to do or not do in coverage, right? That, that was an area of concern going into it. Go look at what FSU did against Syracuse last week where they had the linebackers triggering a ton and going downhill and uh, and some, some breakdowns in the back end really kind of allowed Syracuse to hit some chunk plays. This past week against UNC, <clears throat> the triggering, nowhere near as prevalent. They kept the linebackers back in coverage to take away the middle of the passing game for Sam Howell, which is what he absolutely loves. UNC feast, and, and when that offense is clicking, they take a ton of deep shots. But but what kind of makes it hum consistently is Sam Howell taking uh, taking taking his his time and, and throwing the ball over the middle of the field, really with the RPO game, and he's got a strong quick release as well. So FSU kept its linebackers back pretty consistently, kept everything in front of them. They played with two high safeties for a majority of the game, ran a lot of man coverage on third down. And all and, and didn't blitz very often either. I think they only blitzed about 25% of the dropbacks. So and when they did blitz, it was effective. They forced the uh, pressure forces the Sam Howell underthrow, the Jerry and Jones picks off, the lone sack that Florida State had late in the game with Jermaine Johnson, another JJ there, uh came off of a pressure from a blitz to kind of get the quarterback scrambling. So basically you kind of hid your weaknesses, you played to your strengths, and you took away what Sam Howell does best. Yes, UNC put up uh, I think it was like six point. Seven, 6.5 yards per play. UNC was able to move the ball. They got into the red zone a couple of times where they didn't punch it in. If they do, I think we're talking about this game a little bit differently, but the defense makes plays and basically you force UNC to beat you consistently. 
that's two years in a row that Adam Fuller has had a pretty nice game plan and has hit weaknesses in his defense uh, against UNC, against a pretty prolific and high-powered offense. So, so credit to Adam Fuller where it's due. Uh, FSU played well. They had a good scheme, and they executed that throughout the game. Yeah, you, you get the pick in the end zone. You also get the goal line stop. You know, split the difference, say one's a touchdown, one's a field goal. That's 10 points. That's a tied ball game right there if you don't get those. So those are huge for the defense. I thought the defensive line was very, very good in person. Uh, How obviously ran pretty effectively, but I think that was kind of what they were going to allow him. You know, sometimes when you're playing a basketball game, you're playing an exceptional player. You sort of figure out what can we take away and what can we allow that won't hurt us too much. I think that's sort of the trade-off FSU made there, and I think some of that goes back to what Sinone was talking about with the linebackers. Um, Real quick, Chris, I, they did. Sam Howell did break 13 tackles. I think that was more than what they wanted to. The tackling was pretty poor on the back end of the defense. It has to be corrected. But to your point, yes, they, they did kind of say we'll take him scrambling versus him taking shots downfield. That was the trade off they made. They just they didn't quite execute it as cleanly as he needs to to have a great game, but it was good enough. Jamie, they're really good. They're really testing the limits of the depth on the defensive front. If you noticed, uh, Fabian yeah. Lovett didn't get a lot of reps in this game and i was told he was very good he did he yes he's banged up but he's a guy that they're trying to they're not trying to like take him off the field entirely but they are trying to manage his reps because he is injured he's playing he's playing hurt right now um jarrett jackson is another guy that they missed i was told that you know hopefully this bye week gets him ready um even though you know he's not a guy that we counted on but with dennis briggs down um, this team is is searching for depth, and, they're, and right now they're finding it. They're finding it. Uh, Joshua Farmer got a few snaps. I don't expect him to be into the rotation, but if you can get Fabian Lovett healthy through this break, you can get Jarrett Jackson back, you know, this D-line is going to keep going. Um, I think Adam Fuller has done a phenomenal job coaching around some of the deficiencies and coaching into some of the strengths. I mean, nothing's perfect. We saw Sam Howell get loose on the run, you know, running the ball but i think they made a concerted effort to try to take away the deep ball um i don't know if florida state's roster has an athlete that can shadow a sam howell and shut him down you know i mean that's a role that some great linebackers have played at florida state and i just don't think this roster has it so if you're going to give up one or the other i'd probably you know let sam howell gain a couple yards on the ground over him airing it out and hitting a deep touchdown in two plays yeah, and I thought the secondary competed really well in the day. I thought it was the best time this year that – the best example of this year that they've done that. Obviously, McClellan gets beat by Downs for a 33-yard touchdown, basically foot race one type of situation there for Downs. Uh, Morales' 21-yard touchdown, really nicely schemed play. Deloach gets too far down, bad angle, can't make up the foot race, ball's put in the perfect place. That That's an effective play by an offense. That That's a hat tip to the offensive coordinator role there type of play, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, you know, Jamie Robinson's PBU on the sideline was phenomenal. Uh, a couple balls in the end zone competed for well. Jerry and Jones obviously had his interception. That was huge. Uh, and just in general, like even like Sidney Williams. Sidney Williams didn't have a great game. He didn't have an awful game. He had a game where he had some really awful moments and some really good moments. But he competed really, really hard the entire time he was out there. Man and played at not 100% ball. either. Right. He was hurt. Too. And he played yeah. through it in the end. Yeah. So uh, I'll take that all day. If the defense is willing to play really, really hard and makes a couple plays, they will put themselves in a position where an offense that's shown itself capable of scoring, you know, 28 to 35 points most weekends now when they're healthy, Jordan Travis, all those pieces are in place. 
to, Go ahead, to, to that point, Chris, when was the last time for both you guys that you saw FSU play complimentary football? Michigan 2016. Compl- it's, it's been a minute right. where, where the offense right, built right. on what the defense did. And yeah, I can't think of anything. I mean, the BC win in 19 had a huge special teams play. Isaiah Bolden comes to mm-hmm. mind. But I don't remember enough offensive and defensively in that game to say that's a one. But Michigan, and there were some chunk plays that were fluky in that 29. It wasn't, I mean, they, they played hard and played well after Willie was fired. And, and that was kind of, but you have the DJ Matthews play at the end of the game. There was a lot of, flu, this was controlled throughout the This to me was the best performance I've seen in five years as a whole football team. And there's plenty of flaws in the game. They weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but FSU's been a really bad program and they've been dreadful on the road. There's a reason I picked them to get their ass kicked on the road this week. I thought they were going to. They didn't. They went out there and won by 10, and it was a better performance than they had last year against UNC, where there was a couple essentially fluke plays that very much played a huge role in that upset last year. And I say fluke with quotations around it because you still have to make them to make it matter. But this was a much better performance. Now, I think this UNC team's a little bit less than that team last year, especially offensive weaponry-wise. But I thought it was really, really impressive by FSU that they essentially played a really poor first quarter overall, and they dominated the action from that point forward. And if I was a UNC fan, I'd be pretty ticked off about how UNC approached the fourth quarter. Oh, my the God. Whole, that the was... whole long drive killing the clock thing was just weird to watch in person. That was bizarre. I, I still – and Mac Brown didn't really – there wasn't a great – I watched the postgame press conference. There wasn't a great explanation of what they were doing. That was bizarre. But, you know, you're allowed to outcoach people. You're allowed to outplay them. We've been saying that all year, and I think this was an example of, of FCU was superior in almost every category across the board. It happens. Yeah, it, Going back to the rewatch, there were two defensive plays that I kind of wrote down as like, oh, that's just one. The Deloach one, but again, that's a very nice play offensively. Morales, what they did there. The other one was the, I believe it was a Josh Downs quick screen working to house left. Jamie Ronson keeps climbing down pre-snap and gets too deep, and essentially the ball is behind his head when it's thrown, so he's then in pursuit, which allows Downs to have a pretty solid yards after catch on that play those That's were both those off the same make. drive right chris well those both uh, out of, i think those were both if i could be wrong i think those were both coming out of the gate of the third quarter so that was unc basically making yeah, its adjustments I, yeah i think it was that drive you're correct yeah i believe so yeah so they made their adjustments fsu adjusted back and again like you're allowed to counter and to to take the other team's punch like that that's what's encouraging about what we saw on saturday Malcolm Ray made a few plays again. Solid two games in a row. He's for another him. one he that's been in there. Testing he didn't play depth. in the last one, but the one prior to and this one, he's been, he's been, you know, he's answered the call to some degree. He's not obviously game, but he's making enough plays. Josh Farmer, I watched him a few times. Keyed on him. He got a little pushed around at times, but he battles. He fights. You know, he'll get better with more reps. He needs them. Just keep trying to get him spot duty here and there, um, especially as you're trying to alleviate the load on Fabian Lovett. Jermaine Johnson's a mean, bad man. That that hit on Hal was fantastic, and he was clearly pissed off about what seemed like a phantom call in the prior play. I, I've seen that play in person and on film, and I still can't figure out why there was a No, that was a bull, a bull crap call. That was, that um, was bull crap. Trying to think who else I thought had a good day. I thought Deloach actually played pretty well. I thought Gaynor actually played really well. I thought it was probably Gaynor's best game of the year, truthfully. Um, good job a couple times pursuing the play after it got by him. Not necessarily towards him, but you know, went beyond him, and he still pursued and made plays. And then I thought the secondary had their best day of the year. Purvis Brown went quiet the- in a very good way, right? He yeah, was- didn't allow a reception. So, do we think they didn't attack him because he was effectively covering things, or do we think that was sort of Phil Longo falling asleep at the loop? Uh, I mean, it could be a little bit of both, right? Um, 
they didn't really test him at all, but he there was never anything that we saw uh, live or rewatching the game where like it was a glaring, hey, he's he's wide open. Again, having two safeties back, I think he probably has a little bit of help. But um, yeah, I mean, again, you're allowed to you're allowed to have a good game. It's allowed to happen. You're allowed to to out execute a team and to out coach them. And again, I, I think that's another example of FSU kind of hid hid uh, areas that have been weaknesses this year, and guys played better too. A little bit of both. All right, you guys want to move on, talk a little recruiting? Let's go. Sure. Okay, we think we've uh, exhausted the rewatch. But in recruiting, uh, <clears throat> last week, Travis Hunter was the talk. He had everybody buzzing um, as he showed up in Athens on Saturday morning. But this weekend, it was Travion Williams, the four-star defensive end commitment from Mississippi. He had a lot to say after his game on Friday night. He spoke to a local paper and said, quote, I had my options weighed and I've sort of backed off of FSU a little bit to weigh my options again. I'm trying to stay close to home or if I can get a better offer for what I feel like is best for me to get to the next level. Um, Travion Williams is a recruit from Mississippi that we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast. Um, Last week, he took a visit to LSU right after he was offered. And um, the prior weekend, he was at Mississippi State. He committed to FSU back in the end of June, but Chris, this is one that um, we've kind of had our eye on even when he was, quote, solid to FSU. Anytime you're recruiting in the state of Mississippi, it's going to be a dogfight. When you start 0-4, it doesn't bode well for you. Um, Travion Williams didn't say he was decommitted, but how do you feel about it? Well, it's funny you say that because we had the conversation when we saw a Clarion Ledger story should we call it a decommitment or not? My argument was he didn't say the word, therefore we shouldn't say the word. But yeah, I mean, it definitely yeah, I was like ready to jump on matter. it as a decommitment at first. Um, yeah. You said that I kind of reread the quote, and I was like, "You're right. We sh- we can't put words, you know, we can't make up words for him and say it's a decommit." But we both we both feel that he is reopening his recruitment. Yeah, I, I put no that doubt. in the headline. I think that's fair to say. Um, a reopening of a recruitment while you're committed. It seems like a decommitment is imminent. What do you think? We need the notes app to happen. Basically. That's what we're waiting on. We're waiting for the appearance or him. Just he's got the hand on the rip cord. He just hasn't fully pulled it yet. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you sort of forecasted this last week when you and Sinone went at it um, that, you know, it's uncomfortable with Williams LSU offers. He immediately shows up on campus, Mississippi kid. We've seen this movie before with Charles cross, for example, it's just not one of those things where it goes great. Now FSU is going to do their best to get them back on campus again. I think their hope is to get them twice more before December. That would be, I think six visits for him since the beginning of his recruitment with FSU. It's tough to, you know, do that. And I'm sure Saturday to some degree helped, cool to flames a little bit, but yeah, he's super important. Do I feel optimistic he sticks with the class? I don't at this point, obviously. He's putting those quotes out there. He feels comfortable enough to be doing that. You know, he's not kind of working in the shadows and evaluating options before saying that. He's essentially openly saying he's doing that. So yeah, it's it's massively concerning. And he's an important piece. He's a very talented, big body, athletic guy on the front seven on your defense. There is not a replacement for Travion Williams on the recruiting board right now. A six, four and a half, 250 pound freak of a defensive end. There's just, there is no replacing him from the high school level. And, and let me do a little decoding for those out there that are, that are probably scratching their head saying, you know, he wants to stay close to home. What do you mean he wants to stay close to home? He committed to FSU when he lived in Mississippi. He still, 
Travion is trying to be polite. Okay. That's all. A lot of times you see commits when they're rethinking things saying, you know, he's just trying to be polite. So let him, you know, this, like Chris said, this wasn't an unexpected move. When you recruit the state of Mississippi, this is just kind of how it goes down. So they're going to have to battle, but like you, Chris, I do not feel optimistic about Travion Williams. Um, But one recruit and maybe even more important than Travion Williams is Travis Hunter. And I got on here last week and I said, I have zero worry about Travis Hunter decommitting. Um, Obviously last week, you know, there was no Travis Hunter decommitment. Uh, Florida State wins this one. And guess who was watching? Travis Hunter. Uh, Travis Hunter was in the locker room virtually on IG Live with Jarvis Brownlee. And for those that don't know what I'm talking about, you can go to Knowles 24-7 in the recruit reaction story that Zach Blostein put up. We have like dozens of recruit reactions in there. But there is the video of Travis Hunter on IG Live with Jarvis Brownlee and another DB after the game. And it's actually really cool. Um, Somehow, someway, Jarvis Brownlee had the wherewithal to think, hey, I need to be the one to save the 2022 recruiting class and let me dial up Travis Hunter here on IG. And you could hear Mike Norvell at one point, Brownlee goes, hold on, Mike, you know, Coach Norvell's talking. And you could hear Mike Norvell's passionate post-game speech in the locker room. And Brownlee looks down at the phone and just tells Travis Hunter, bro, we need you too. We need you too. And uh, Hunter looked receptive to that. Um, he was basically in the locker room celebrating with those guys. So that was great to see. I mean, Travis Hunter remains committed. Chris, any thoughts on, on his recruitment right now? Hey, real quick, guys, well, uh, breaking news. And then you got into Travis Hunter. Brian Robinson has entered the transfer portal. So I'll let you discuss that while mm-hmm. I go ahead and write it. A little breaking news on the podcast. On the um, Hunter subject, nobody's a better recruiter than your own players. Because they're of that age, they're usually going to shoot pretty straight. To see a guy doing that in Brownlee's case, any other DBs that were on the call there enjoying it with him, it, it's good. And I think it speaks to the fabric of trying to create a really good culture. It kind of goes back to the original point that we talked about in the opening of the show of, is there stuff that's positively being done, building blocks? I, I think that's an example of that. On Hunter's case, my two's down to a one, Snow's tens, probably down to about nine and a half now. Uh, your your zeros in the negative. It was an, it was an eight point five. Now it's an oh, eight. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, it's down to an eight now. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not worried about Hunter beyond the normal worry I have for any and all recruits because I don't yeah. believe any of it's real until they sign the paper. And hell, sometimes even then it's not even real. So I'm just a jaded just old man know. who's done this for too long. <laughs> so, but no, it's a good thing. It will be really nice if Hunter's back here for Miami. They have a good recruiting weekend. He kind of leads the charge. That probably puts it all completely to bed, in my opinion. Even if he does show up, say, to Alabama LSU or something like that, I think it will just say he's a young man who wants to go to some games, and he has a clout to easily do that, so why not? So I think that's a positive. But, yeah. you know, Georgia isn't going to stop pursuing him. I'm sure there's others of that sort who aren't going to stop pursuing him. You just keep fighting the battle. But that that kid likes FSU a lot, and he's probably the greatest ambassador for that class, and he's certainly the tip of the spear for that class. Definitely, without a doubt. Um, you know, Florida State's class is still holding tight. You, we're not as optimistic about Travion Williams, but we are, you know, optimistic about the number one recruit in the nation, Travis Hunter. Let's talk about some visits elsewhere. Uh, you had a recap on this. Two of the big names were Wesley Besaint, uh, the Miami Central linebacker that mm-hmm. Florida State's heavily involved with. He was at UF. 
Another top prospect that FSU was involved with was also in Gainesville, and that was Nigel Lee Kelly. Um, and also Alu Ba, we'll talk about him after. But tell me about Besaint and Kelly and what's going on there with their recruitments. Blake Alderman from our U.S. site got up with both of them. In Besaint's case, it was his official. It was his fifth and final official. He's been to FSU, Penn State, West Virginia, Miami, Florida. Those are the five. He's deciding from those five around Thanksgiving is the plan now. Uh, Wesley's kind of been a tough one to figure out. I think a lot of people think Miami's certainly a contender. I fall in that that thought process, too, just with them being in the backyard. Um, FSU's got Savage Joseph, Randy Shannon, Ryan Barto working really hard there, and then Chris Marv and head coach Mike Novella all involved. So there's a great deal of effort being made here. But I've also heard some positives for West Virginia, as I think Josh has. And, you know, I, I heard not to dismiss Penn State. And Florida seemed to make a good impression and obviously made the last official impression. So Florida, Florida yeah. State and Miami have given way to West Virginia and Penn State. Let's yes. be honest. Like if Florida the, the State been and Miami came out firing, the, yeah. Wesley Besaint would not be entertaining West Virginia and Penn State. I think he's an immensely re- important recruit for FSU. I think he's an athletic, physical linebacker. He's pretty much exactly what they need at that spot. And they need a few of them. Um but, yeah, if I had to forecast it right now, I'm not real comfortable with putting in a crystal ball for anybody. Um, he's one that's kind of done a good job keeping it to himself, and he's a Miami kid, and not to paint them all with the same brush, but sometimes those decisions aren't really made to about, you know, 12 hours before they make the decision itself. So I kind of feel that way about his recruitment right now. Uh, Mom's a big key in that recruitment. She was here. She was also in Gainesville. I believe she's taken several visits with him. But she's a big piece of that puzzle. She's been to Miami with him several times. Um, and then in Kelly's case, unofficial visit, but it was a multi-day visit to UF. I think it was kind of important for him from a UF perspective to get that because he hadn't really had that opportunity to check so much out and invest that amount of time. Uh, he's still speaking like a very wide-open guy, wants to take more visits, kind of depends on how his schedule works out. He did not mention FSU among those visits. But at last check, we still believe he's likely to be here for the Miami game in November. Decision for him is coming closer to signing day. Kelly seems to enjoy the recruiting process. FSU is going to be in it till the end. But there's a lot of schools that he includes in there. Oregon, Indiana, Florida, FSU, Miami. I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two. Clemson is in that picture too. Here's how I feel on the two that we just talked about. I I, I feel like um, FSU is the the favorite for neither. But yeah. I feel like they're probably more in it with the Saint than they are Kelly, is my is my gut feeling. I feel that way too. I feel like the Saints also narrowed the focus of his recruitment a little bit more, with narrowing it down to five and taking officials to those five. I feel like Kelly's a kid who's really wide open. Like I, I feel like a school could commit, for example, Clemson, who has been kind of involved That's with exactly him and Marvin Jones Jr. They can come in, get him in on a visit next week, and it completely changes everything about his recruitment. None of that would surprise me with him. I just feel like that's the flow of his recruitment, that he just right. kind of really enjoys taking visits. He enjoys the process, and he's obviously been committed before because he was committed to FSU previously. So he's not really in a rush to do it again. He's going to take his time and then make a decision. Yeah, But it's important for FSU to get him back here from Miami, obviously. Any other notable visitors elsewhere this weekend? Uh, as you mentioned, Ball was at UF, but that feels like it's trending towards Georgia. I actually flipped my crystal ball to Georgia, as did Steve Wiltfong. I think the Georgia guys all put in a crystal ball for Georgia. Um, Georgia's just been constant with him since the summer. It seems pretty abundantly clear they want him, and he was there a week ago. Um, 
Willis was supposed to be at Old Miss. I don't actually know for a fact that he showed up at Old Miss, but I know he was expected there. Obviously, saw a shootout there. Um, they could use anything, linebacker, safeties, whatever he wants to be. He can go be it. Um, and then Jaleel Skinner came off the board, committed to Alabama on, was that Thursday or Friday? Day start. Friday, Jaleel. Yeah. Friday. IMG four-star wide receiver, tight end, Jaleel Skinner uh, commits to Alabama. I got that first crystal ball in on that. Um, but I did have a crystal ball in on Florida State first. But I will say that I, I was the first flip to Alabama. Um, Florida State's recruiting board at this point is fairly thin. Um, Kevin Coleman is really the only high school wide receiver that I think Florida State has a legitimate shot at. And I do think that they're still – I think – after Florida State's start, of all the top prospects FSU was involved with, I think the one that they probably still have the best shot with is Kevin Coleman. Yeah. I still think Kevin Coleman's coming to FSU. Like, right. as so, of today, I wholeheartedly feel strong about Cristobal with him to FSU. At that point, I, I do not think that Florida State will – I mean, I don't think that they're going to get involved with another high school wide receiver at this point, even with the news of Brian Robinson leaving the program. I think that they're going to go to the portal. Um, I reported that Destin Hill is expected to be on campus next semester. Uh, checked with the source, not necessarily checked with the source yesterday, but was told again yesterday that you know Destin Hill is being expected to to make his appearance on campus next semester. So. That being said, I think Florida State's focus is in the portal. Um, I think the portal is going to be the, the main means of adding talent after the season ends. I don't think that we're going to see a ton of new offers. I mean, we've seen a, a little bit on, in, on the offensive line with Michael McCoy, um, a new offensive tackle that got Matthew. offered last week. But Matthew McCoy. Matthew? Matthew yeah, McCoy. I'm, just, I'm here for you, Josh. It's okay. Um, I, I just don't. <laughs> I don't think that they're gonna they're gonna press a, a lot to bring in these under rate under the radar high school prospects. I'm being told that it's gonna be more of a uh, portal bonanza after the season. So we'll see how things go with that. Anything else in recruiting that we need to mention? No, I, I would just say on the portal thing, that's a whole other discussion. We're gonna would it be in the bye week? And the most important thing for FSU with the bye week is getting healthy. Um but we're going to dive a little bit into the roster and, you know, obviously guys they took from the portal, how that's turning out, guys that departed here in the portal, how that's going for them, things of that sort. Um, I think the portal is a live and learn experience. I think FSU's going to learn a lot from the big class they took this year. Obviously, some have been super fruitful. Hello, Jermaine Johnson. Thank you, Dylan Gibbons. Others have been fairly worthless. Brandon Moore, you know, didn't really last here, for example, is an example of that. So it's about finding that balance and trying to hit more than you miss. And if FSU is going to turn this class into a class that is to some degree going to be a little portal heavy, definitely heavier in the portal than I think they intended going into the season, then it's going to be important for them to, again, hit. Um, so, yeah, that's about it. And, uh, yeah, yeah, O-line Woody, for example, he went to Auburn again. But Woody, Baugh, if they lose those, and, yeah, you're probably looking in the portal for that. You covered a wide receiver position. Defensive line, you know, Marvin Jones, Kelly, Williams, super important for them. But if they end up missing on those, then it's probably portal. It's going to be so portal. Th and that's going to oh, be the continuing thing. I'm, watch. 
with certainty, because there's been reports elsewhere about Taj Harris, Syracuse wide receiver, I can say with certainty that FSU is not pursuing him, does not plan to pursue him, and will not pursue him. Um, it's also just it's insanely early for this, guys. Um, it's insanely early to think that like Florida State's going to just jump on a portal guy now, unless it totally makes sense. But just every name that hits the portal right now is going to be interrogated by FSU, and, and they're going to do a little bit of dd on it but i don't think they're making any moves in the portal for a couple months here it just depends who's available hello i'm back i'm still updating the story brian robinson has been removed from florida state's roster he was not off of it when i first checked so any hope of like hey come on back brian so he never had a single catch at florida state did he no i don't think so he was not with him at north carolina but that's not a surprise um, you know, travel roster is usually a little bit lighter, so there's a few guys that aren't with them, so you don't put a ton into it. Um, unless it's someone who is usually lean upon not healthy throughout the almost entirety of his you know, less than two years at Florida State. Too bad because he, he had this year, no, he was on and off, he would practice and look great, right, and have some moments where he really flashed, but just it never was strung together for weeks on end, and and so I mean tough to play when you're not available right yeah. the, the top trade is availability um yeah but it sucks like, like behind the eight ball because of off-field circumstances related to health and last year he was hurt too and he's someone who enrolled in the spring it, it's tough uh, i think as we talk about the direction of the program and roster management and whatnot later in the week as you guys just alluded to he's part of the 2020 class that's mike norvell's first class he had he was a silent commit under Willie Taggart and some of the FSU coveted was the top ranked offensive recruit in that class. And you're going to start seeing more and more attrition, I think, from that transition class, just like we saw with Willie Taggart's 2018 class. Those transition classes, when you're trying to say, well, why doesn't FSU does do this? Why doesn't FSU do that from a talent perspective? Two transition classes in the early signing period is going to lead to a lot of whiffs, a lot of attrition, a lot of just things not working out. Hence why the transfer portal is going to be so important for this program. I, I believe for a couple years in a row now. Most productive member of that class is Robert Scott. Mm-hmm. I'd probably say DJ Lundy and Alex Mastermano would be your next two. Uh, Stephen Dix has also brought a lot to the table. Toe Philly showed flashes last year, but hasn't really gotten going this year. And Ja'Kai Douglas is another one in that class who's been valuable, but you know, Robinson, as Sinon just discussed, Demory Tate's yet to really see the field in any form or fashion, despite the fandom obsession with him. Uh, Jay Amacluster certainly doesn't look like a guy who's going to do much. Sidney Williams has been valuable. Josh Griffiths is already gone. Uh, yeah, so that, that class is – Damian Webb's already gone. So that class is already kind of showing some of the signs of the what 18 and 19 have developed into. Oh, we ended this kind of on a somber note after going into it with such high hopes. Wow. FSC Thanks, Ryan. 2021. No, hey, you know, we I keep think it the real. writing was on the wall there, though. Florida State needs more wide. You know, Florida State has a major need for a playmaking wide receiver to just step in and go. And, you know, for whatever reason, Brian Robinson isn't that guy. Probably is not going to be that guy at Florida State. So, um, good luck to him. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll continue to see where he ends up, but let's get, speaking of, uh, ending up, can we talk a little bit about our travel issues this weekend? I wanted oh, to say this time. for the end of the show. It started with me. Yeah. We didn't know, like, we thought like what happened with me 
was like some freak thing, but it ended up being the beginning of a colossal crash of the Southwest just business. I mean, Southwest canceled, I think, 1,800 flights by the end of the weekend. So what happened with me was um, we talked about it on the last show. I was going to go to Chapel Hill on as a civilian on my day off, going to go as an FSU fan and, and sit in the stands and, and take in a Florida State game. So I get on the airplane, it it pushes off the gate on time, and I'm sure I'm not the only one because there is half the flight was decked out in garnet and gold. So I'm, I'm willing to bet somebody listening to this podcast was on that flight. Um, we pushed off from the gate and there was a little bit of lightning or something. So we got in a 30-minute delay. When we come out of the delay, they say that there's 24 flights ahead of us before takeoff. And each flight is going to take four to five minutes. Each plane is going to take four to five minutes to take off. So you do the math. We're going to be sitting here for about an hour and a half, two hours. Um, we get to the number one spot. I'm not joking. The pilot comes on and says, we are in the number one spot for takeoff. However, there's a wind warning. And the bad news is we are at our three-hour limit mark. Uh, we're going to see if we can, you know, get off the ground before this. We have 10 minutes to get off the ground. Long story short, the wind warning does not lift. We hit our three-hour mark. They take us back to the gate. It takes us an hour to get off the plane because they had to check off each of our names. I'm supposed – we got on the plane at 12.20. I get off the plane at 4.30, and they say, okay, the flight is canceled. We're going to bring in a new crew, and at some point we're going to try to get this thing to Raleigh. But we can't guarantee that there's not going to be another delay when we get on the runway again. So I said, you know what? Thank you. I'm going to get – I'm going to go 25 minutes back to my house in St. Pete and, and watch this game from uh, – from my couch. So I did not make it. Now you made it to Chapel Hill and take <laughs> it from there. So I flew Jacksonville to Raleigh Durham. Me, my wife, our boys, we drove over to Jacksonville, flew out of there early Thursday morning. We flew out. No issues flying there. Went great. Smooth as can be. So Sunday we have a 5, 10 PM flight scheduled. So Sunday morning, 8, 23 AM, I get a text saying your flight's been changed to 5, 5 PM. That's the only detail of that text I truly looked at till about oh, nine hours later. Um, it also said that my flight had been changed to 10.13, five minutes different. So Wednesday. So we actually went to the airport. We went, so we went ate lunch near Chapel Hill, New UNC, went and checked out the old well, went over to Duke and watched some FSU volleyball in Cameron Indoor because my son's a Big fan of Cameron Indoor, wanted to see it in person. It was pretty cool. Plus, it was kind of empty, so it was nice. So we enjoyed that. Head to the airport, get there easily two hours before our flight. It's supposed to be, originally. We're sitting at the gate, and my wife comments, you know, there's not a lot of people at this gate for the fact that our flight's about to get ready to board. So I go to board, and it's on the board, but it's not canceled or anything. No gate assignment, no time, nothing. I didn't know any of this was going on with Southwest at, beyond Josh's obstacles a couple of days prior. Mm -hmm. so we head back downstairs to the ticket encounter i talked to the lady she's like the earliest we can get you anywhere near where you're trying to go and i had given her uh orlando Tampa, or i'm sorry orlando Atlanta, jacksonville or panama city as possibilities was tuesday at best and wednesday for jacksonville the rebook was the only like closest certainty that she could give me i'm like well that doesn't work my wife has to go to work i have to go to work the boys have to get back to school because 
they missed two days at school on the back end of last week. So we go back to Hertz where we'd returned a rental car about 90 minutes earlier and rent another car and hop in the car. And I think I drove way too fast from Raleigh Durham to Jacksonville, got to Jacksonville's airport a little after midnight, turn in that rental car, get our car, get our car, drive to Tallahassee, get home around 2 a.m. or so. Yeah, we're all going to be really productive human beings today. That's what I know about yeah. the knee family today. We're going to be really not- productive. So, yeah, not fun. Southwest did refund our flights. I'm going to try to get them to reimburse me for the rental car and that stuff. It was just a nightmare. But apparently about 30% of their flights yesterday were completely grounded. They were trying to blame more their traffic that. control and weather. But it's a mess. Like, I, I didn't group know that I The group it. that I was meeting there, um, they were in town a little bit before me. They were in Asheville, in Asheville. And then meet, and then I was going to fly to Raleigh to meet them. Well, they we were all flying out on a Southwest flight in the morning. Of course, that got canceled. So I, I was texting with them yesterday. One person um, took a different airline via Fort Lauderdale back to Tampa, and a bunch of them had to take JetBlue Raleigh to Newark, Newark to Tampa last night. So instead of getting home at like 12.30 p.m. like they were supposed to, I think they arrived home like at 9 p.m., but they at least they did get home. So I'm, you know, sometimes you're it's better to be lucky than good i think i might have i'd rather get stranded in tampa my home than get stranded away from home like you from a time trial standpoint i think i set a new lifetime record for making it from tallahassee to raleigh durham though last evening what did you do how, how many hours uh i mean we left it was like probably about 5 30 when we got the rental car and we walked in the house at 2 a.m and that's with the stop in jacksonville to switch out cars and you know, have two really tired kids who wish they had neck pillows. Oh, man. Well, we're here. Um, it's great to have everybody on the bench somehow, some way today. Um, we'll be back. This is a bye week for Florida State, so we're not going to do a preview pod, but I think we're going to do like a mid-season. Is that this week or next week, Brendan? Uh, no, it'll be this week. Uh, we'll try to try to get that later on in the week, a little big picture action, if you will. So, yeah. yeah, review some of the transfers, you know, hits, misses, um, prizes but yeah we'll break it all down thank you for listening to on the bench we'll be back soon